Dear friends, our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. Which means we're nearing the end of this written sermon. And as we do, we feel, I believe, the urgency of the pastor's heart. All through our Hebrews series, we've pointed to chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 36, as the essential expression of that urgency. You have need of endurance, the pastor says there, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Last week in chapter 12, verses 12 to 17, we considered the pastor's exhortations to the first century Christians to whom he wrote, they were to help one another to do this, to do the will of God, to endure in faith. Or using the language of chapter 12, verse 1, they were to help one another to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because it's not an easy race. The pastor knew that. Suffering and persecution were on the horizon again for this community, and some were already exhausted in their struggle against sin. But it is for discipline that you have to endure, the pastor told them in verse 7. God is treating you as sons and daughters in all of this. Your suffering isn't without purpose. In fact, it's for your good. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, the pastor continued into verses 12 to 17, support the weak and wounded among you. Strive for peace and holiness and see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. They had to help one another to make it. And so now, having called upon them to endure the fatherly discipline they're receiving and to help one another to continue in holiness and godliness, the pastor moves to verses 18 to 24, where he returns to many of the emphases that we've seen earlier in this sermon. In these verses this morning, what the pastor emphasizes is why. Why can they continue to persevere? Or maybe better, why will they continue to persevere? What is it? that ultimately grounds the pastor's confidence that despite the suffering and struggle that lies ahead, they will persevere to the end. What is it that they themselves need to keep in view in order to carry on in obedient faithfulness? I'll put it somewhat cryptically at the outset here, and then we'll spend most of the sermon trying to explain it. The reason the pastor gives for why his hearers can, why they must run the race set before them and help one another to do so is who they are. 
only in this text, what we see is that who they are is known by where they've come. Verses 18 to 24 consist of a contrast between two places. In verses 18 to 21, the pastor describes where it is his hearers have not come as the reason why they can persevere in faith. For you have not come to what may be touched, the pastor says. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens, the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Though he never says the name, it's Mount Sinai. The pastor is talking about there. You have not come there, he says. Rather, in verses 22 to 24, the pastor describes where it is his hearers have come as the reason why they can persevere in faith. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. At the heart of our passage this morning is a contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Only so that we don't get sidetracked, let me go right to what I think is the heart of the matter. As I read it, the pastor's contrast in this text is between how those who come to Mount Sinai and those who come to Mount Zion experience the presence of the living God. In verses 18 to 21, what we see is that those who come to Mount Sinai experience terrifying exclusion from God. And in verses 22 to 24, what we see is that those who come to Mount Zion experience blessed fellowship with God. The key question for the recipients of Hebrews, though the pastor answers it for them, the key question then for us also is, in which group do we belong? And how do we know? Let's begin by looking at verses 18 to 21 concerning Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai and the terrifying exclusion from God experienced by those who come there. Though the pastor never mentions Sinai by name in these verses, there can be no question he has it in view when we examine the description in verses 18 and 19 that I read earlier. In verse 18, the assertion, you have not come, would seem to imply by way of contrast that you have not come as the Israelites did come. Listen first to how Moses describes this Sinai event in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Listen to the first word of it. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, Moses said while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. 
Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The pastor clearly draws on this Deuteronomy 4 passage in his depiction of Sinai. The Israelites came near to the mountain that burned with fire, Moses said, matching the pastor's description. The only place where the words that the pastor uses for darkness and tempest appear in the Greek Old Testament is in these descriptions of Sinai found in Deuteronomy. And finally, the pastor's description of the voice that spoke words of commandment clearly finds echo in our text this morning. But Deuteronomy chapter 4 is not the only passage in view. Other details in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 18 and 19 are taken from the narratives of Exodus chapters 19 and 20. When in verse 18 of our text, the pastor describes Mount Sinai as what may be touched. He likely alludes there to Exodus chapter 19 verses 12 and 13. There the Lord said to Moses, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. From there, the Exodus narrative continues in verse 16 of Exodus chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Verse 21 of Exodus 19 then makes clear the danger the people are in. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. The details of Exodus chapter 19, many of which are echoed in our passage this morning, emphasize that the visible and audible displays of God's glory at Sinai were terrifying. And the pastor picks up on many of those in his description, but perhaps most revealing of all would be the response of the people. Following the people's preparations and their terrified approach to the mountain in Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 17 are, of course, the Lord speaking the words of the Ten Commandments. We read about that 
In Deuteronomy 4, verse 13, he declared to you his covenant, Moses said, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And then following the giving of the Decalogue, we read this summary in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. We could study in greater detail all that's contained in these Sinai narratives, but by now my hope is that looking at these texts make the point clear. At Sinai, the presence of the living God was terrifying to the people of Israel. Immediately after God spoke the Ten Commandments, the people requested that Moses intervene for them, that they not hear the unmediated voice of God again. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 19, the pastor says, when the people heard the voice of God, they begged, begged that no further messages be spoken to them. Only the verb translated to beg there in that verse is the same verb that the pastor will use below in verse 25 to mean refuse. Hebrews 12, verse 25 says, they refused him who warned them on earth. The voice of God at Sinai as he gave them his commandments was not one the people welcomed. Instead, the pastor says in verse 20, they could not endure. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Listen to how one commentator explains the significance of that verse. He writes, verse 20, cites the command that no one, not even an animal, touch the mountain on pain of death as reason for the people's request. This command was given in Exodus chapter 19, verses 12 and 13, before God appeared on Mount Sinai and was reiterated in Exodus 19, verses 23 to 25, right before God spoke the Ten Commandments to the people. Thus, it is closely associated with those commandments. Hebrews refers to this specific instruction or command because it emphasizes the people's inability to approach God. Not only human beings, but even unwitting animals would suffer the death penalty if they touched the mount of God's disclosure. Death by stoning meant that no one else had to touch the violator and suffer the same consequence. Thus, this verse concludes the previous description by making it clear that those who hear but reject the word of God cannot draw near the divine presence. Do you see? At Sinai, the response of the people of Israel to the presence and voice of God was that they were terrified. 
Of course they were. They weren't permitted so much as to touch the mountain, lest they die. Verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 12 then summarizes the pastor's description of this situation at Mount Sinai by saying, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Only, at first, that seems surprising because there is nothing in either Exodus chapters 19 and 20 or in Deuteronomy chapter 4 about Moses saying that kind of thing at all. In fact, he's the only one who gets to go up the mountain. And when he comes back, following the giving of the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 19, Moses says to the people in Exodus 19 verse 20, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Only if you've read Exodus or Deuteronomy, you know the people failed that test. In verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 12, the pastor is drawing from a later text, in Deuteronomy chapter 9. The context is still Sinai. Beginning in verse 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses recounts how he went up the mountain to receive the tablets with the law. And he says in verse 10, on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And then in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 9, we read, The Lord told Moses to go down quickly. For your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. It was the golden calf, of course can read about it also in Exodus chapter 32. And so Moses comes down and remembering the scene now in verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 9, he says the mountain was burning with fire and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands and I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. And so Moses broke the tablets and he lay prostrate before the Lord as before 40 days and 40 nights and he didn't eat or drink water because of their sin. And when we come finally to verse 19 of Deuteronomy chapter nine, we find it. This is what the pastor has in view in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21. Here's what Moses said. For I was afraid, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. When the pastor says in verse 21 of Hebrews 12, so terrifying was the sight. 
He's summarizing what Sinai meant to the people. What Moses himself recognized when Moses realized what it all meant for the stiff-necked people of Israel, it was the anger and wrath of God against their sin. It was the sin of the people that made the Sinai revelation of a holy God so fearful. Moses' fear indicates the inability of the rebellious Israelites to approach God because of the terrible sentence of judgment under which they stood. And the whole point of it all is that the pastor's saying to the recipients of Hebrews, you haven't come there. This is not how you relate to God. Why? Because you're not like the Israelites, who though they were in the presence of God, couldn't draw near to him, who though they had heard the word of God, rejected it and turned away from the Lord in idolatrous sin. You know how Moses describes the people of Israel at Sinai? He says it in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 24. He says, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Of course, they were terrified. As one commentator puts it, everything about this picture of Sinai says, stay away. Don't come any closer. The covenant was ratified from a distance because of the unholiness of the people. God resided in the gloom of his mountain and the people were not allowed even to touch its base. The emphasis, therefore, rests on the unworthiness of the covenant assembly on God's judgment of their sin. And the pastor writing Hebrews looks at the recipients of his sermon and he says, that's not you, brothers and sisters. That's not who you are. And we've seen this kind of thing before in Hebrews. We saw it in chapter six, verse nine where after the stern warning that opened chapter six, the pastor said to them, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We've seen it in chapter 10, where in verse 32, the pastor said, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. No, the pastor's hearers haven't come to Mount Sinai where they will experience the terrifying exclusion from God on account of their sin. Quite the opposite. You have come to Mount Zion, the pastor says, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
There they experience not terrifying exclusion from God, but rather blessed fellowship with God. The recipients of Hebrews aren't rebellious, and thus they have not come to that place of God's judgment. Instead, they have come to. They have come to stand before and live in a different reality. The verb that's translated in verse 22 as you have come is a form of the same verb that the pastors used before in Hebrews to urge his hearers to draw near to the Lord. It's the verb he used in chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's the verb used in chapter 7, verse 25, when the pastor says of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And it's the verb used in chapter 10, verse 22, where in view of the confidence we have to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, the pastor says, let us draw near. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near, the pastor commands his hearers. Only now, as he ends his sermon, the pastor would have them know that in their approach to God through Jesus Christ, they have not come to Mount Sinai. They have come to Mount Zion. The pastor's saying that when you and I draw near to God through Jesus, our great high priest, we do not come to the place of judgment. To a place of terrifying exclusion from God, we come even now to a place of utter joy and excitement as we experience with all the company of heaven, the blessed fellowship of the Lord. Listen to how one author summarizes this. He says, quote, every aspect of the vision provides encouragement for coming boldly into the presence of God. The atmosphere at Mount Zion is festive. The frightening visual imagery of blazing fire, darkness, and gloom fades before the reality of the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. The cacophony of whirlwind, trumpet blast, and a sound of words is muted and replaced by the joyful praise of angels in festal gathering. The trembling congregation of Israel gathered solemnly at the base of the mountain is superseded by the assembly of those whose names are permanently inscribed in the heavenly archives. And then this author says this, and I love the sentence, an overwhelming impression of the unapproachability of God is eclipsed in the experience of full access to the presence of God and of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, end quote. Friends, 
the picture of this gathered assembly at Mount Zion communicates exaltation, warmth, openness, acceptance, and relationship. That's where we have come. If we've drawn near to God through Jesus Christ, here in verses 22 to 24 is the fullest picture we get in Hebrews of the future promise that awaits us of salvation, life with God in a place. And yet, even as the full reality of that awaits us in the resurrection life to come, the pastor's point here is that it isn't all future. That you and I can, in fact, know something of this reality now as we draw near to God in prayer and worship. So what's it like, this heavenly Mount Zion to which we have come? Well, time is very short, so we'll have to run through it only very quickly. But there are seven things the pastor mentions First, we come to the city of God. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion is technically part of the city of Jerusalem. It's the place where the temple was built. But so closely are Zion and Jerusalem associated that we're meant to understand them simply to be synonymous. The point is that they both represent the dwelling place of God. Here, of course, it is the heavenly Jerusalem the pastor has in view, the place Paul calls the Jerusalem above in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. It's the place where God's people dwell with him. By bringing God's people into the most holy place, Christ has brought them to the true Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the place where the faithful will live as the society of God's people in fellowship with him. It's the place Abraham looked forward to, the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And yet it's not exclusively experienced in the future you have come there now, the pastor says. The reality described by these three names has always been the ultimate goal of the faithful. But since the exaltation of God's Son, Jesus Christ, entrance thereunto has also been our ever-present privilege. One commentator writes, through his high priestly work, Christ has opened a new and living way through which they can enter daily into God's presence in order to find strength for perseverance until the end. Life in the city of God is distinguished by joyful fellowship. And so second, at the end of verse 22, we come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Outside of the scriptures, the word here translated as festal gathering was used of parties or the celebratory atmosphere at annual athletic competitions. In the Old Testament, the same word speaks of gatherings to celebrate an occasion of joy or delight often associated with a feast. What a sight this is, multitudes of angels all in festal array inviting us to join their glad worship of the Lord. But it's not just angels who are there. Third, we come to fellow believers in verse 23. 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The word translated assembly almost always refers in the Bible to a gathering or assembly of God's people. It's the word for the church in the New Testament. Here the pastor refers to the one faithful people of God that spans both testaments whose names are enrolled in heaven. In secular context, the term for enrolling often had the sense of recording legal citizenship. <laughs> well, here those whose names are enrolled are forever citizens of this heavenly realm. They are the firstborn. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, we saw that Jesus was the firstborn. Well, now the pastor stresses that all God's sons and daughters are the firstborn, fellow heirs with Christ, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, who share the inheritance of the Son as full members of the assembly of the heavenly city. Fourth, continuing in verse 23, we come to God, the judge of all, the pastor says. His presence has, of course, been assumed from the start. He must be the center of the city of the living God. Only here in the midst of this joyous picture of life in his presence, the pastor emphasizes that he remains judge of all. He remains the holy God of Sinai. But that fact now only increases our joy as we realize we can enter into such fellowship with the ultimate and sovereign judge of all. As one author puts it, this joyful fellowship is not to be taken lightly. God has not relented in his holiness. This wonderful scene of blessing is possible only through the salvation he has provided in his son. Which is why fifth, we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect in the end of verse 23. A reference to the godly who have already died. To all believers throughout the ages, having been cleansed from sin and thus brought into the presence of God through the work of Jesus Christ, they are those who have been accepted as righteous before the judge and made perfect forever. Which brings us finally to verse 24, where we find both the sixth and seventh aspect of Mount Zion. For here we come to Jesus, the pastor writes, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's by no accident that the pastor waits until now to remind his hearers that in coming to Mount Zion, they come to Jesus and his sprinkled blood. For while God is at the center of this picture of Mount Zion, the mediator comes at its climax. He is the one through whom God has made everything described in verses 22 and 23 possible. Through him, we draw near with confidence. For as the mediator of a new covenant, it's Jesus who is able to cleanse our hearts from sin, implant God's law within us, and remove every barrier that has separated God's people from his presence. In other words, it's only because of Jesus 
that we can come to Mount Zion at all. That's been the main point of Hebrews, has it not? The heartbeat of Hebrews, we have a great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Hebrews 9 verses 11 to 15 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls or goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called receive the promised eternal inheritance. Brothers and sisters, it has been the pastor's burden all along to show us that life on Mount Zion is the great benefit of the new covenant brought about through Jesus's sacrificial death on our behalf. When Cain murdered Abel in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10 of that chapter records that the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. But where that blood cried out for God's judgment to fall on the sin of guilty Cain, the blood of Jesus cries out for us to be released from God's judgment against our sin. The blood of Christ addresses God's people with a better message than the blood of Abel because it provides salvation rather than condemnation. What more encouraging thing could the pastor possibly say to us than this? You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Brothers and sisters, the primary motivation for endurance in the Christian life isn't the fearsomeness of God. It's the grace of God. The grace that's ultimately on display in Jesus. He who as our pioneer, high priest, and mediator of the new covenant has provided access to the blessings of Zion for the people of God. It is our eternal hope. Psalm 46 verse 4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So it's unsurprising that at the beginning of the last chapter of the Bible, the Apostle John writes this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. To this you have come, the pastor says. You have come to this mountain and this city. Look upon it with the eyes of faith. All that is there is yours. All the blessings of God. And even God himself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 